All right, I'm William Dyer. This is Dyer Conversations. Tonight, we have a special guest on, a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, Ted Wright of Epic Art Theology. Ted, what's going on, man? Billy, it's great to see you, brother. Man, it's been a while. It has been a minute. I was thinking the other day about trying to figure out the first time that we met, because we've been uh, kind of running past a bunch of different times in the apologetics community. Yep. And I could not remember. Do you remember the first time we met? I think it was through cross-examine, but I'm not sure. Maybe it was the National Apologetics Conference. I just don't know because it all, it's all blended together. I've met so many people who are like, oh, I, and people contact me. are like, oh, I know you through. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, act like I remember, but I really, <laughs> I really so, don't. So and I think when, it was um, through cross- Did you go to CIA? Did you, did you go to cross-examine? Mm-hmm. That may have been where, where it was started. I was thinking that was it. But I also remember in Maryland when I was up there, um, there was a church that put on like an apologetics conference every yes. year. Yes. And they had like Tim McGrew out. They had a couple other guys out and you came out. Yes. And I remember that. I, me me I, and Frank and Tim McGrew and yeah. yes. And I don't remember how I got the blessing of being able to do this, but whoever the guy was who was putting it on, um, I got in contact with him and was like, hey, I'm right by BWI, you know, the airport. You want me to pick the guys up for you? I mean, I was totally, I was totally trying to slot in there, and uh, and he was like, "Oh, that would be great. Yeah, could you pick him up and take him out to dinner?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll take him out to dinner because mostly I just want to hang out with him and talk to him." Um, <laughs> That's great. And so, uh, not to you know slight anybody else who came because I mean it was great to meet all of them, but I just remember like that that was some like the first times I met you, and I left that going, "Man, he's down to earth. Like that guy just talks to you like he's a normal dude." Yeah. You know, so if anybody's, uh, you know, never or if somebody has never met Mr. Ted right here, he's <laughs> he's pretty down to earth. Thank you. Thank um, you. Well, my dad was a, my dad was a truck driver. So I, I'm, I'm I'm pretty I come from the I come from the, the blue collar era uh, area of the world. <laughs> yeah. Where did you what state did you grow up in? I actually was born in Mississippi, but I grew up in the Memphis area my whole life. My dad, my dad drove for truck for like 30 years and it, he was in the Teamsters Union. So um, my dad. He came to Christ late in life. He came to Christ uh, probably in his late 40s, early 50s. And um, so, yeah, I uh, one of the things he told me, and I was already sort of in seminary and sort of beginning to get in ministry at the time. And he would always tell me, he said, son, you're a really smart guy. But he says, really, just keep it, keep it on the lower levels for us common people, you know. So I've tried to always try to remember that. My dad's gave me some great advice. And I've tried to, you know, try to talk to the common guy. Because I think a lot of apologists... There are really a lot of sharp guys out there, really smart. But one of my big, I guess, complaints, for lack of a better word, uh, in the apologetics community is that they're preaching to the choir. A lot of a lot of apologists are just talking to each other, and there's this big dialogue among apologists. And like, what about the average Joe? What about the guy who works a nine to five job? Because isn't that what apologetics is all about? You know. So yeah, anyway, when I when I first started my my blog website, which is currently down because there's some glitch in the matrix and I don't know how to get it back up right now. But, uh, I mean, so my podcast is running, but my written blog is down. Um, I called it coffee table apologetics because that's the exact sentiment I had. I was part of all these groups on Facebook and I think there's a, there's a place for it. Right. Yes. However, and of course my lights just went out, right. Talk about, um, however, I found that like and I don't know what, maybe it was my ego saying like, Oh, I'm, I can't hang with like that sort of intellect. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, if I'm not able to hang with it, other people aren't able to hang with it, but mm-hmm. it's like, 
do you want to be like a little William Lane Craig walking around talking this like really deep philosophy and all this stuff that 99% of the culture has no idea what you're talking about? Or do you want to be on the street with people and talking to them at their level? So yeah, I'm with you. Um, That's why I love to go deep. I love to study. I I read William Lane Craig and all those guys. Um, You know, I'm getting better at understanding it. However, I try to bring that down, the nuggets of truth to the people, you know, and like sit across and have a cup of coffee with somebody to say, yeah, let's talk. That's right. One That's so awesome, Billy. And one, this is years ago. I've taught, I've taught for about, I'm trying to think of how long I've, I've been teaching graduate, well, not graduate level. I taught undergrad Bible college. But one of the things that I, you know, when you teach, you start, when you teach, you have to, you're, you're confronted with this dilemma that apologists face that is that they're reading William Lane Craig and they're reading reading uh, people like Alvin Plantinga and they're reading other great philosophers and thinkers. But how do you bring that to the common guy? So that led me to something that I call, I don't know if, I, I don't think I coined the term, but I don't know where I got it from, but I call it the translation issue. And that is that a lot of, uh, 99.9% of apologetics needs to be translated into the everyday language. And so um, and you're right. I mean, I'm reading stuff like, um, you know, I love William Lane Craig and stuff like that. I'm reading some really like philosophical theology, you know, people like uh, John Polkinghorne, who just passed away, who was an Anglican priest and a physicist. He says, he says some amazing stuff. I'm thinking, how in the world can I communicate this just to the everyday guy, you know? And so, um, so that's one of the things, there's just something always lost in translation, but you got to bring it down to, to the common level. Are you going to lose 99% of your people? And that's exactly what you said. And so, yeah, I'm so with you on a, that, brother. Being a fellow SES guy, as you are, you're familiar with Thomas Aquinas and his oh, sort of philosophy, yeah. right? You heard of him once or of twice? Yeah, I think I've heard of him. <laughs> um, and so as I'm going through all that stuff right now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the same thing. Number one, I'm trying to figure out, like, do I buy into his school of thought, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I told Dr. Hal this, I said, listen, man, I'm, I'm <laughs> sipping the Kool-Aid, but I'm not chugging it yet. Right? I, I got to have a little bit of investigation here uh, to, to, you know, before I buy it wholesale. But, you know, I thought, how do I, how do I, at the same time, how do I bring some of that, you know, down to the everyday level of people? Because even now more so, you know, they're just, the normal person wants to talk just like very rudimentary and it's hard yeah. to get people want to have those intellectual conversations. Um, yeah. but you, on the other hand, I know you kind of delve into all that other stuff, but your field is archeology, span right? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, did you always know like growing up, Hey, I want to be, this is what I want to do. Like I want to be an archeologist or was it something like you came to later, you stumbled in, you got pushed in, like how'd that come about? Uh, no, I, I didn't know. Here's the, it's interesting. Cause I, Usually when I, I've done several podcasts now where, where people will ask me that question and, and I have an answer for it. And um, is every time I give the answer, I, I sort of looking back now, it's easier to answer the question. But looking back, I can see how I, I my personality was sort of geared toward that. So, uh, Billy, I don't know if you remember when the Boy Scouts were actually a <laughs> a pretty decent organization, but yeah. I was uh, I was in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And thankfully, uh, my scout leaders were very, very intelligent men. Uh, one of them was a dentist. The other one was an engineer. And these guys were great, like, lovers of history. So they would always take us to these. Uh, I grew up in the Memphis area. So the biggest Civil War battlefield near Memphis is a, is a battlefield called Shiloh. 
and Shiloh Battlefield uh, was, uh, it took place in April of 1862. So uh, just a few, about a week or so, it's going to be like, um, you know, the whatever 100th anniversary of the, the Battle of Shiloh. But it happened in the spring of 1862. And at the time, it was the bloodiest battle in the Civil War. Like, I think something like in the two days, 26,000 men died on both North and the South. So as a Cub Scout and then a Boy Scout, I went to that battlefield multiple times. And it was there on that battlefield that I got this sense of like a love of history. Like I wanted to know like what happened here, who, who lived here and what, what young men fought on this battlefield, who died here. And one of the, a couple of things I remember is um, one of the, I, I forgot who said this. It was one of my scout leaders or if it was one of the tour guides we went with, but because in April in, in the Memphis area, um, <clears throat> the, um, cherry blossoms, the apple blossoms are starting to bloom. And there was a peach orchard near this big battlefield on, at Shiloh Battlefield. And the blossoms at the time in April, some of the eyewitnesses basically said that the, uh, they were pink. The whole thing, the whole trees were all pink with blossoms. But when the battle took place, the mini balls that were flying through the air were hitting the trees and it literally stripped the trees bare. And I remember that one of the things they said is that the, uh, the blossoms were falling on the dead like snow, these pink blossoms. And, and one of the writers basically said that it was like, isn't it odd that in this time of life and new life that all this death has taken place? And it made a huge impact on me. So I carried that with me as a kid. And then um, I joined the U.S. Air Force and uh, I went to the Air Force between 1989 and 1993. And so uh, getting out of the Air Force, I decided I'm going to get my degree in ancient history. And um, so I was pretty much settled on getting my degree in history and probably doing a double major in philosophy, doing philosophy and history. And um, I was talking to my pastor one night. He said, I want you to come to my office and I have something I want to give you. So he, uh, he brought me back to his office after church and he gave me this big stack of magazines and it was Biblical Archaeology Review Magazine. And I took them home with me and I just devoured every single one of them. And I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. So it wasn't until probably I was in my early 20s, 21, 22, until I knew for sure archaeology is what I want to do because it joins my, lo- my passion for history and my love of scripture and my love of the Bible with, with archaeology. So, and the other thing too about it that I like about archaeology is that um, I'm really an active guy. I love outdoors. I like hiking. I like outdoors and I like being with, working with my hands, you know, but I also like books. So archaeology gives me the best of both worlds. I can study and be academic, but then I can also get in the field and do field work. And that's the two things that I love about archaeology. I think you just convinced me to become an archaeologist. Because <laughs> I was on board, this, man. You, well, the, I was the thinking the same. Yeah, I was thinking the same safe. thing. Is like I hate sitting at a desk all day. You know. Yeah. Now, if you give me books, like, hey, man, yeah. here's some books you're researching. So I could sit at a desk all day and do that. But like, I could never have one of those jobs where you sit nine to five at a desk. Um, it's one of the reasons why I went into law enforcement, just, you know, to be able to like be out and about and you, yeah. know, you never know what's going to go on and that sort yep. of thing. Um, but like you said, being able to couple the yep. research with hands on, uh, is pretty, is pretty cool. So I think, I think you might've convinced me. It's the that. best of both worlds. Yes. I look years ago when I was an undergrad student in archeology, span I listened to a, um, this little lecture series on St. Augustine. And um, I remember in this lecture, uh, there's a few things I do remember about it. But one thing I do remember is that, that the, uh, the guy, the, the biographer, was basically saying Augustine came to a point in his life where 
he was trying to figure out, did he want to enter into the contemplative life or the active life? And, um, and he just, he basically decided that he wanted to be a contemplative and, you know, just, just write and think about God. And I thought, I don't know if I could do, I got to have both. I've got to have the thinking, but and then also the active life as well. So that's, that's the cool thing about archaeology. You can do both. Yeah. I, like I know eventually I want to be able to teach, right? Like, I mean, I've always had, ever since I became a Christian, I've always had this really strong passion for learning and teaching. However, I, I think I'm still too young to just destined my history to be like in a classroom, in the office, in a classroom, in the office. Like I got to be out and about somewhere, Yeah, you know, doing something. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll take one of those trips over to Israel with you. Love to. Yeah. Love to. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm trying to go. I've got a couple of things, uh, expeditions now. One uh, may or may not happen because of so, so many things that are happening right now. One in Turkey and the other one with my team in Israel at Shiloh, and it looks like it's scheduled for July. Uh, we're excavating at the site of Shiloh. Our team's been there for about four or five years now. But, um, yeah, it's it's great. It's just really awesome. This year, y'all are still thinking about going this year? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, nice. Yeah, because I, I was looking at your website at, at the trips, and it was saying, like, stay tuned for details. And I was like, hmm. Yeah. yeah. I need to update uh, because we had that for last year, year before last. And I think yeah. it's because of COVID hit and everything, so. So um, let's talk about the Israel trip. So it looked like the, on the website, there was two different ones, right? There was one where you could go and like participate and the other one was more like a tour. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, so we wanted, and this is what we're going to try to do with the next trip. And I'm praying, I got to talk to my colleagues at ABR. So uh, ABR stands for Associates for Biblical Research. And I am a professional associate with ABR. ABR is a, uh, they're really they really have a, just a lot of different archaeologists in different academic fields. I'm an independent scholar. They have people who are professors at universities all around the United States. And we sort of bring our collective expertise to, um, to basically defend the historical reliability of the Bible. Of course, I have Epic Archaeology as my standalone sort of ministry. But ABR is uh, part of a larger organization that I'm with. And uh, they, ha- they, are, they are licensed to dig in Israel. They've been digging for goodness, I want to say it's about 30 years or so in, in Israel, the Middle East, primarily in Israel. And um, so we had a partnership with Epic Archaeology with my, my friends at ABR, my colleagues at ABR, uh, to join them on their dig um, under the umbrella of ABR. And you could actually join, you have to, you really, you don't have to have any experience at all as uh, in archaeology. You can just have zero experience whatsoever and come on a dig and we'll teach you everything you need to know about archaeology. Uh, it's a learning process. Uh, there's a lot of cool jobs. It's, um, I will say it's a lot of hard work, uh, especially the first couple of days of excavation because you're moving a bunch of big rocks. So you get a good workout. You get a good tan. You know, um, when I was there with my team in 2014, uh, we were digging in the West Bank and um, we had Palestinians digging with us. And uh, I had this one guy was in our square. His name was uh, Hamed. Or in, uh, that was the nickname. His, his real name is Muhammad. But he would bring uh, Turkish coffee in the morning. This really super strong coffee. So since I'm a really big coffee snob, I was like, "This is how you do archaeology. You drink coffee, you know." And <laughs> but I'm, anyway, I'm a fellow coffee snob. So there's oh, no yeah. shame there. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But it is a lot of hard work. And yeah, yeah so it's a two two part thing. We're gonna try to do it again next year, Lord willing, um, in which you can actually take part in the excavation during the week, like Monday through Friday. Uh, and then we're going to add on an exploration trip 
uh, visiting some of the some of the amazing sites in Israel, like Masada and Jerusalem, and some other other places in Israel. And we're going to try to do that again this year, Lord willing, if we can uh, if we can get make it work. So that'll be like back to back weeks, right? Yes, and you can pick one or both options. You can do just the dig or just the trip, uh, just the exploration, or you can do both. You don't have to do you know though, if you're on a budget, you can just do one or the other. If that makes so, sense. So if you come to do the dig, what's a normal day itinerary? Like, you know, you're getting up at like four in the morning, you know, like yes. what's the, what's the deal there? Yes, actually. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 4.30 AM wake up call. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Seriously. 4.30 AM. Um, you have breakfast at about, if you can get a, get to the, I think it's like 5 AM and then usually on the bus by 5.30. And then we are, well, although now, yeah, actually, I think uh, our team is staying in Jerusalem, and so it's probably about a 20, 20, 25 minute bus ride from Jerusalem to the site. So you're there uh, by six a.m. You get the tools, you take them to the site, um, and then you uh, begin. Well, day one, you're moving rocks from the previous year's excavation, and you're getting down. and we're, And what you do is you go uh, layer by layer through the strata. And there, so an excavation is a lot like a sort of a military thing. And I know you're, you're in the law, law enforcement. I was in the military. I was in the air force. So if you know anything about like, um, the structure of military or law enforcement, you have, um, you have a high up, you have like the sheriff or the, the high guy, the police, what do they call it? Uh, chief. chief. Yeah. And then you've got the officers and then you have got the workers and the and the military, the general, the lieutenants, and then the grunts. And so, uh, if you come on a dig, you're probably going to be a grunt. Uh, the lieutenants are what we call the square supervisors. These are the guys that are uh, that are actually supervising a square, which is a usually about a one by one meter square. And uh, we basically dig down layer by layer or strata by strata. The stratum is the different layers at the tail. And we measure the artifacts in, in a three-dimensional context. And so um, you're gonna, you'll be assigned a square and you'll be assigned a supervisor. And then you'll work under that supervisor. That supervisor will explain to you what to do. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, basically, once you get below the rocks and you begin to take the stuff out and you put it in a little rubber uh bucket called a gufa g-u-f-f-a it's made out of old tires re recycled tires and if you find a piece of pottery you'll put it in that gufa at that particular place where you're digging and it'll be assigned a little number and then you'd be like if you like if you're digging in like square q10 and you are digging in area or locus a or one or whatever then you're going to have a tag on that bucket that will have that locus on it and you'll put that pottery in that so that that it's recorded exactly where that piece of pottery is found so if you find a bunch of piece of pottery then when you uh we get done about 2 2 30 in the afternoon we have lunch uh, sometime about 12 12 30 and then we go back to our site uh to our headquarters and we will wash the pottery of the day that was found there's a there's a pottery scrubbing party you have a water hose you have a little brush and you get your bucket of pottery that you found and you get water hose and you scrub the pottery. <laughs> Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then the, what ABR does is really cool. It's very, it's like a really great learning environment because, um, after the pottery washing, then we have our team, uh, that's composed of usually the, 
the scholars in the field, usually uh, the people who are experts in pottery reading, we have a pot official pottery reading, and it's under a tent or under some type of awning or room or whatever, and they'll lay the pottery out bucket by bucket, and the uh, experts will actually go through each piece of pottery, and they'll assign it a particular like Iron Age 1, Iron Age 2, whatever, and it will be recorded exactly what that pottery was for the day. And so that's that's the typical day. And then you're exhausted, and you eat dinner probably about 6, 30, 7 o'clock, then you go to bed, and you get up and do it again for a whole week. Yeah. No, that's a, that's so, a cool experience. So yeah. have you been over there or um, known of when anything like really significant has been found? Um, well, um, yes and no. Um, this is where it gets a little bit of nuance here. This is where the professor is going to come out because you never get a straightforward answer from, from a professor. <laughs> um, so one of my, I guess, pet peeves, and this is not your fault or anything, but a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I think, general misunderstanding that the general public, even the Christian public has about archaeology. And, you know, when we think about great discoveries, we think of like the Ark of the Covenant, you know, or the some other great discovery. Where, where what I want to say uh, to my average Christian brothers is that the mundane, just everyday things that are found are little small pieces of the puzzle that actually carry great weight in making the case for the historical reliability of the Bible. So, so uh, I'm not trying to dismiss your question because it's a great question. And, and, to, and to give you an answer, a direct answer to the question, um, in 2014, in my square, we were digging at a site called Kerbet el Makader, which, uh, which basically is in the West Bank. It's right across the main road going into the city of Ramallah, which is the Palestinian territory, and it is what we believe to be the ancient city of Ai. Uh, it's pronounced Ai. I was I was corrected because I was uh, for years I'd called it Ai, but I was told again and again it's Ted. It's I. Just just say like iPhone, iPad. So just for future reference, you know, if you want to, it's a. I want to say Ai, but it's I. So we believe it's the city of Ai, and that city was destroyed by Joshua and the Israelites in about fourteen. 1 BC. And uh, so I was digging in square Q10 at I, at Kerbet El-Makader. And um, so in my square, we found a lot of pottery, the dates of the Canaanite period. The day that I left, uh, my buddy that uh, is now teaching at Yale University, his name is Matt Glassman. Uh, Matt actually found in, my, in, in our square, he found a Canaanite, two Canaanite sling stones and two bronze arrowheads. So this is from nice. the time of Joshua and the Israelites. Nice. So, so that's my only thing. I didn't find it. Matt did. So I'm mad yeah. at him. So, uh. <laughs> but that's good to know though, is like archeology span is more of like the cumulative case. You know, you're getting all these yes. small pieces to create that bigger picture of this is what life was like at this certain time. And then we take the Bible and we say, now the, the way the Bible describes life during whatever time period, does that match up with what we're finding here? That's probably actually, um, you know, by God's plan, right? That yes. it's better than just like that one piece, you know, yes. of evidence, because then somebody may doubt, well, it's one piece and people are saying it's good, but what if it's not good? And you're yep. going to hang everything on that one piece of evidence. Exactly. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. Archaeology is a cumulative case. Um, it is a vital part, I think, of a historical apologetics, um, in addition to the philosophical arguments and the arguments from 
the reliability of the text itself. There's really good arguments that are made by people like Michael Kona and Gary Habermas and uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace and other great, you know, great scholars. But archaeology, I think, is a very uh, strong ally for the historical reliability of the text. Uh, give you one example: uh, the Book of Isaiah. Um, now, critical scholars and liberals will say that Isaiah was actually uh, written late. Uh, according to the Old Testament timeline, we think that Isaiah was written in about the 8th century BC. So we're talking about the 700s BC, 700 years before Christ. But again, liberal scholars would say it was written much, much later and probably not just by Isaiah. In fact, it was very likely not written by Isaiah, they say. It was written by multiple writers and then it's written very late. And when you Whereas, oh, real quick, when you say late, just because it's hard sometimes for people in BC time, when you say late, you mean closer to yes, the time of Christ. Yes, much closer to the time of Christ. Uh, in fact, probably very they again, they would say it was very likely not written by Isaiah. Uh, but two things actually argue very strongly that Isaiah is legit. Uh, historically, number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found the complete scroll of Isaiah that had no chapter and verse divisions between chapters 39 and chapters 40. Because one of the things they would say, liberal scholars would say, that that uh, the first part of Isaiah was written by one writer, and then the second part was written by four or five different other writers. Whereas we've got a, even by liberal standards, we've got a the complete scroll of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, at minimum two to three hundred years before Christ, and there's no chapter and verse divisions in between chapters 39 and chapters 40. So that's just the textual evidence. But not only do we have the textual evidence, we have the archaeological evidence that firmly grounds it, I believe, in the 8th century BC. We've got things like the Sennacherib prism that's found in, uh, there's actually three copies that we know of. One is the British Museum, one is here in Chicago at the Oriental Institute Museum, and the other one is in the British Museum called the Taylor Prism. And this, this is a, 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 a prism written in Akkadian cuneiform that basically says exactly what the Old Testament says about the destruction of uh, the city of Lachish and also the uh, siegement of uh, Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah. So, uh, and, and again, I'm just, I'm just scratching the surface here because there's so much more to it. But we know very much about the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and uh, whoever wrote Isaiah was an eyewitness to the Neo-Assyrian Empire and knew it very well and knew their policies and knew their kings and knew their, you know, how they did things. And so we believe that it's written. And then not only that, um, uh, we've got Jerusalem. You can actually go to Jerusalem. The, in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Isaiah, it says that uh, King Hezekiah, because he knew that this Assyrian king was coming, was going to besiege Jerusalem, he actually uh, did two things in preparation for the besiegement. He dug a water channel under Jerusalem that was discovered in the 1800s. It's called, called the Siloam Tunnel, and, and there was an inscription found called the Siloam Tunnel inscription. And the second thing he did was he broadened the walls of Jerusalem uh, to about 23 to 26 feet thick because the Assyrians were they were the bad dudes of the ancient world, and they were experts in siege warfare. So, so, so Hezekiah knew they were coming. So in the 8th century BC in Jerusalem, we've got the broad wall of Hezekiah that's been excavated by archaeologists. So, um, so I would say that we have archaeology and historical reliability, and they go hand in hand, and they work as a cumulative case. Have you ever noticed that it's never enough for certain yeah. people? 
Yeah, exactly. It's never enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could build this entire cumulative case and say, like, everything points to it. There's nothing that points against it, you know, and they would still come up with something or for some reason to deny it, you know. But that's it's important for people to know is that this isn't like a blind face sort of a thing. The Bible is an actual historical document, and everything that we that we look at, every time we pull something out of the ground, we're finding more and more confirmation. Yep. You know, and like you said, you breeze through like a hundred things there. Um, and you could spend, we could spend a podcast on each one of those, you know, and I know that on your, so let's talk about, let's talk about your ministry. Cause part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast, just my podcast in general and having people on is because I want to promote what other people are doing in ministry. Right. So you run Epic Archaeology. Tell us um, about what that is and how it got started. Yes. Uh, interestingly, this coming Sunday, this, and I don't know what this is going to, what this is actually going to air, but, um, this coming Sunday, uh, on Easter Sunday, we launched in 2017, uh, we officially launched Epic Archaeology. I wanted to de- decidedly de- de- uh, launch it on Easter Sunday because the, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith. And so I started it because, um, there, there were a couple of already ministries out there doing archaeology, uh, but I, I mean, I love these guys, and I'm not going to call any names, but they're doing some great stuff, but there was a translation issue. Some of the information wasn't getting down, and it wasn't communicated in a, in a way that really reaches the modern world, I think. And so uh, part of my, part of my uh, decision or part of my desire was to have a – archaeology and apologetics, historical apologetics place where if somebody wanted to know, hey, do we have any evidence of this evidence of this thing that happened? They could go to Epic Archaeology and find evidence for it in a simple, straightforward way, not to have to wade through a bunch of stuff, but just, hey, do we have evidence of this? Do we have evidence of that? So to really just keep it simple, and uh, and really the other thing too was one of my own crises of faith uh, was when I was an undergrad and archaeology student. Um, I was told by my professors that a lot of the events in the Old Testament were actually not true. And um, I actually had to dig uh, through the library to find information to, it, it, as to whether or not some of these stories that I read about in the Bible, like the Exodus and the conquest, you know, and all these great stories in the Old Testament, do these things really happen or is this just a story that was made up? And so I actually found Josh McDowell. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict, and then that led me to Norm Geisler. Ended up going to seminary and studying under Dr. Geisler and becoming his graduate assistant, and then became good friends with Frank Turek, and then worked for Frank for uh, several years. Uh, so, so I wanted to I wanted to have a place where if someone again a skeptic or a Christian who was str- sort of not struggling but had some really big questions about whether or not historical events actually happened uh, to have a ministry and a website uh, where people could actually go find historical evidence for the story of the Bible and, but also do it in an, in an academically respectable way, but then also make it visually attractive uh, to the, to the social media world. If yeah, that makes I mean, sense. We're like literally on the same page, just on two different topics. Right. So like, that's the exact mentality that I have for, I kind of think about apologetics, but then also good theology, because in my opinion, having studied both now for years, I think a proper theology is actually a good apologetic as well, because yes. God has created this world, and he's created a certain reality, and when you actually have a true, good biblical theology, you're able to talk about the world as it really is, as everybody else experiences it, and they can't make sense of it, and you go, 
let me help you make sense of it. Yeah. Well, where'd you get those ideas? Well, it's from the Bible. You know, like how did all yeah. these guys come together and figure this stuff out? Um, so I'm trying to do the same thing where you talk, uh, you know, about like liberal scholarship. And so my last semester, um, I took Dr. Howe's, you know, Genesis or not Genesis, the, um, Old Testament survey class. Oh yeah. So I had to write the documentary hypothesis paper. <laughs> right. And yeah. this, and this guy said, Hey, look, there's no limit on the paper. Just write a good paper and cover the topics. Well, you can't tell somebody like me that because, <laughs> you know, I, if, if there's a topic, I'm like, okay, well, look, let's look at this issue. Oh, this issue has four rabbit trails. Let's go down all those rabbit trails. Oh, they have rabbit trails too. And before you know it, I'm having to cut myself off, you know, on my studies and I end up writing this like massive paper. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, I got to do, I got to do some podcasts on this. So like you said, I was like, well, I'm not going to dive into all the technical stuff, but I want to give people something. And then give you the footnotes to say, if you want to research it deeper, here's a book you yep. can go read or an article or a video you can go watch. You know, um, I gave you a five minute summary of three hours of research I did, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a thing. Um, and you're doing that with archaeology, right? Like you are taking your wealth of uh, experience and knowledge and all the stuff you study and you're trying to break it down in these bite sized chunks for people like yes. me and for everybody else who <laughs> says, look, I enjoy touching on it. But I don't want to spend three weeks, you know, trying to research this one thing just to yeah. find out, you know, a point that I'm looking at in the book of Isaiah, like who's done the research. And if I need to fact check them, I can. Absolutely. So um, yeah, when I was looking at Epic, Epic Archaeology. You have you got a website, you got YouTube, you're on Instagram, you're on. Are you on Twitter? Uh, yes. Yeah, you're on Twitter, on Facebook. I know that Um, you have on YouTube Monocle and Spade playlist, but then also the Arrow Points. Yes. Playlist. So yes. tell us what's the difference there. So the monocle and spade is more of like a long form podcast type of thing where I interview um, scholars and different guests that have. I try to make it really uh, try to pick topics that are really fascinating and interesting and guests that you typically don't hear about because again I don't like to be redundant you know and have people on that people have already reviewed like at the, the William Lane Craig and nothing not to knock him he's great we keep talking about Dr Craig and he's awesome I've met yeah. I know Dr Craig he's a great guy gentleman and a scholar, but there's just a million podcasts on William Lane Craig. And how much more can you learn about William Lane Craig and what his views, you know, like Kalam. Um, So I try to pick guys. And uh, again, I'm, I like to think outside the box and I like to pick scholars that are, don't get a lot of airtime among apologists and especially historical apologetics. And so the difference is Monocle and Spade is going to focus on a uh, an important question. One example would be Dan Gibson, a Canadian scholar that I interviewed. It's very long. It's about an hour and a half. I'm going to try to cut some of it down and make it more understandable. But um, he wrote a book several years ago that's just a bombshell. I mean, just if he's right, this is huge historical information. What he says is basically Dan Gibson is that uh, Muhammad, uh, the prophet Islam, uh, did not actually... Um, speak to God, if he did at, at Mecca, it was, at, it was actually at Petra, and that the Kaaba, where the uh, Muslims pray, all Muslims around the world, billions of Muslims around the world pray to the Kaaba in Mecca in Saudi Arabia. What Dan Gibson says is the first 200 years of Islam, all the Qiblas, or the directions, the prayer walls in the mosque, do not point to Mecca. They don't point to Mecca. That's a fact. They point to Saudi, they point to Petra and Jordan. And he can point to, he can give you the sources for the Hadith and the history of Islam. So uh, 
those are the kinds of things that we try to explore at Monocle and Spade, and they're a little bit long form. Think Joe Rogan podcast, although I don't have nearly half of, not even less than half or a one percent of what he has. Uh, but he has like millions of followers. But, but I'm trying to think of a long form discussion type of thing. Uh, and we're eventually I'm working on right now trying to get it actually on all the podcast platforms. You can actually just have audio. Uh, so if you're working out, you can just listen to it on your on your headphones. Um, but that's Monocle and Spade. And then Arrow Points is just a quick snippet, just like it is an arrow point uh, of some historical little apologetic archaeological point that I think uh, will help people in their faith. That's kind of the difference between the two. So what's funny is when I was researching for um not the documentary hypothesis, but like a smaller paper I had to write on the Exodus, right? Just a small little topic in, uh, you know, biblical <laughs> studies. Um, you know, I did, I did, I was like Googling some searches and uh, like Epic Ar- Archaeology popped up. Hey, all like, right. I was like, I know this guy. So I was like, let me, <laughs> let me, let me click on his. So I watched, um, you know, you have a short video on it. And then I found that, you know, your blog and you had written a paper on it. So you are cited in one of awesome. my papers in college because awesome. I was like, how could you not respect Ted Wright? He's a graduate <laughs> of the school, you know, so I'm going to totally cite this guy. Awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I got an A on that paper. I awesome. Right, Cause I name dropped you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now that's good though, because I mean, look, it, I know we, we say William Lane Kirk just because he's like, you know, the foremost like sort of Christian apologist yeah. almost, but even with him, like he's a brilliant guy. He's like one of those guys, like once in a generation, God gives us somebody like that. Right. Thank you, Lord, for people like him. However, yep. even with him, he's got his expertise, and then he has his things that he's knowledgeable on, mm-hmm. but there's people who have better expertise in that area. And then right. there's things like, I have no idea what his understanding of archaeology is. Like, I've never heard him talk about it. And he might just go, I don't want to talk about it because I don't know anything yeah. about it. You know, go go listen to Ted Wright or somebody like that. <laughs> um, so... Uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about as well is, you know, talking about the trips we were we were talking about earlier. You do some trips to the Oriental Museum there in Chicago, right? Yes, yes. So I've never even heard of that museum, but every time I see your little posts and stuff, I'm like, yeah. man, I want to go to that museum. You know what's funny, Billy, is that people in Chicago have not heard of this. I have had people that have found me. I don't know how they found me, but people that are not even like on Facebook, but they're like, hey, I heard about this tour. I want to come. I've had a couple of people come and they're like, we just heard about things to do in Chicago. We wanted to come to the tour and we didn't even know this thing existed. We lived here all of our lives. And um, it is it is a it is one of the best kept secrets. And in fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a little thing here, a little, little uh, teaser trailer. This is the first time people are gonna hear about this. Oh man. Right here on Special right access, here on dire, dire conversations. conversations. That's right. Yeah. Okay, uh, one of the things I'm going to start working on, I've got a couple of little quick projects I'm finishing up, but one of the things that I'm going to submit is I'm going to write a book on an, a biblical guide to the Oriental Institute Museum and submit that. So you nice. think that might be might be something people would be interested in? I think I'd so. I'd buy it. Yeah. I'd buy it. Even, it's basically, this is like the history of the Old Testament in this one museum. You can literally go from the from the Tower of Babel all the way to the exile the Persian exile before the New Testament in the Oriental Institute Museum. Uh, but yeah, it is, is, it's located at the University of Chicago. 
Uh, in 2019, they they just uh, celebrated their 100th anniversary. So in 1919, the Oriental Institute started by was started by the first American Egyptologist, uh, a, a scholar by the name of James Henry Breasted. And by the way, James Henry Breasted and his colleague at the OI, uh, a scholar by the name of uh, Robert Braidwood, who excavated in Turkey, uh, is believed to have been, and I've, I've tried to trace some of this da- down, is believed to be part of the inspiration uh, for George Lucas to create Indiana Jones and his colleague, the guy, what was his name, Marcus Brody in no Indiana way. Jones. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Uh, Breasted's, uh, James Henry Breasted's, I believe it's his daughter, is still alive. And I was at a lecture last year before COVID hit uh, at the OI, at the James Henry Breasted uh, uh, lecture hall at the OI. It was a lecture by Dr. James Osborne, who is a an OI archaeologist who is an expert in the Hittite civilization. And Dr. Breasted's daughter was there. She's like in her like 80s or 90s. And she told a story about when she was a little girl, when the museum started, she's running around these like ancient ruins. And I mean, it's just like literally there are there's one artifact there, Billy, that literally weighs 11 tons. It's a it's in a it's a winged bull from ancient Assyria. From oh, the no way. from the palace of Sargon II, the Neo Assyrian king Sargon II. There's also the uh, Sennacherib prism that directly connects the Old Testament with archaeology. I mean, there's just so much stuff. So I I'm really thrilled. We have a we have a tour coming up uh, on April the 10th, and I already have a group that I think is going to book me out for the whole trip. So uh, you're yeah. talking about like in like nine days? Yes. Yeah, I can't make that. So. Yeah, I can't make that. We'll we'll have some more. That. So you'll have, you'll have to come to Chicago, Absolutely. and also uh, this is my happy place at the at the campus of the University of Chicago. So I'm a big architecture fan, and um, I go. I usually get there early in the morning so I can just kind of get my get my zen on, you know, before I get there. So there's this coffee shop, and I'm a coffee snob. There's a really awesome coffee shop, literally just hundreds of feet from the OI Museum. And there's a bookstore right next to the coffee shop. And right next to the coffee shop in the bookstore, there is one of the most famous Frank Lloyd Wright houses called the Roby House. So you got the OI, a coffee shop, <laughs> and a bookstore. And I'm like, I'll just, I'm, I'm good here for the rest of the, the year. You know? Yeah. So is this, so this is like a specific biblical um, museum? No. Uh, so yes and no. No. So let me, let me just say that the Oriental Institute was founded, James Henry Breasted founded the Oriental Institute to explore the uh, roots of human civilization, like the adva- human advancements in civilization, like um, to trace how humans have advanced technologically and culturally and from a civilization standpoint. So, you know, there was a time that uh, we didn't have phones. Uh, our great-great-grandparents didn't have phones. And then there was a time that their parents didn't have cars. And, were, and then they had horse and buggies. And it keeps going back and back and back until you get to the very beginning of human civilization. So what Breasted wanted to do when he founded the OI was he wanted to have an institute that studied the foundations of human civilization from the Stone Age all the way to the, to the modern period, or at least in the, in the early Roman period, uh, which in the ancient world is considered to be pretty late, but because the, I mean, human civilization goes back at least ten thousand years or so. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a tracing of human civilization, but so it's not specifically biblical. But 
many of the artifacts in the OI directly relate to Old Testament history. And you just you just have to know the times and you have to know how they relate. And so that's why it's good to have a guide to go through and to kind of walk you through. This is what this means. Like I can show people uh, something called the uh, late Uruk pottery. If you do, if you didn't know what late Uruk pottery was, we just you just think all oh, these are just old pots. But what people need to know, this is the diagnostic pottery for the diffusion of humans when they spread out after Tower of Babel. So, uh, so we believe that the Uruk period centered around the ancient city of Eridu in, in southeastern in Iraq. And Eridu is actually the location of the Tower of Babel, not Babylon. Babylon is much later because uh, the Tower of Babel happened pretty much right after the flood. And so Eridu is the earliest and oldest. Get this now, Billy. This is amazing. The city of Eridu in southeastern Iraq dates back 5,400 years ago. It was built on virgin sand, no previous occupational layers. There was a ziggurat left incomplete for several hundred years until the Ur-3 period. And this civilization, so something happened there where people abandoned the site and they left and they spread out around the world. And this spread can be traced with the artifacts. This is called the diagnostic pottery. So I can show people at the OI the pottery that it shows up in Turkey, that goes into Egypt, that goes into Iran. So people left and they spread this culture around. And you can actually trace this pottery. It's very well known about it. Anybody can look this up. Just Google late Uruk expansion, and this is the Tower of Babel. So this is pretty awesome stuff here, and uh, it's all there in the OI. Yeah, I mean, and this is when stuff really comes alive, right? And this is why, you know, people like you really love archaeology, and I love history. So, like, I'm eating all this stuff up right now. <laughs> it, it makes history come alive, which I would, to, to plug, you know, your ministry, it's like, this is why it's important if you want to go to a museum that's, you know, not just like... um we got museums here in Richmond and stuff, but I mean like, like a really big famous one. Mm -hmm. It's great to have a God because then he can make that experience so much more worth it. You know, oh, and when yeah. I lived in Maryland, you know, there's a lot of those museums in DC. And so I would try to do like some research of a little bit of the history or whatever I wanted, you know, when I was going to go to a certain museum. So that way, when I went, I had a little bit more knowledge of yeah. what I was looking at. Nothing like, you know, the expertise you have on that museum, but that's, Oh, That's man. super cool. I learned, I tell you what, it, it really, it's a kind of a, a blessing that I'm here because it's almost an education with an education. Like there's things that books can't teach you. You mean, you have to actually be there and, and learn about these artifacts and learn about these sites. And the, and the more you lead tours, you hear other people speak. I've been to lectures, uh, listening to OI archaeologists. One more or the, one other little quick thing about Iridu, and then I'll shut up about it, that I learned just recently that's really amazing. I just learned this just literally just about a week ago. This was awesome. Did you know that when Eridu, the city of Eridu was founded, woolly mammoths were still roaming the earth in Siberia? Get out of here. Is that not awesome? Get out of here. This is like the end of the ice age. This is exactly when we believe this happened. So anyway, uh, yeah, so it is an amazing museum. And um, we have had people, I've had students of Moody Bible Institute uh, take the tour. I had a couple of girls go, and there are, there, there are I'm just, again, touching the tip of it, but there are actually uh, two panels from the ancient city of Babylon, not replicas, but actual pieces of wall from the ancient city of Babylon that dates back to the time of the prophet Daniel. And on the wall, these are lions 
from Babylon. I thought you were going to tell me it was a writing. They got no, you. no, 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 <laughs> no. They're lions. So, and the and the lions are on a part of the ancient. Uh, the, it's called the processional way. So, this is the main entry into the ancient city of Babylon that dates back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar the Great, and it enter and it goes into something called the uh, Ishtar Gate, which, by the way, has been partially been torn down and rebuilt. In it's now in the. Uh, museum in Berlin called the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, and it's a complete reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate. But as you go into the city of Babylon, there is this blue glazed brick wall, and along the wall there are these mythical creatures, lions and bulls and things like that. So at the OI Museum, there are two panels from the processional way, and one of the things that I say at the museum, and it's true, is that the date is right, Daniel went into captivity. He went. There were two. Uh, there were two deportations under Babylon, and Daniel and Ezekiel, some of the other prophets, went into the second deportation. So it is very highly likely that the prophet Daniel walked right beside those lions as a young boy, as he entered into as a captive, a Jewish captive. So when I said that to the girls at the uh, well, the students at uh, Moody Bible Institute. They started crying. They were like, this is just like, it just makes the Bible come alive. Yeah, and, and if, if Daniel was like any other young boy like I was, you know he touched it. Oh, yeah, right? of like, course. Like, I'm sure he reached out and was like, oh, look, look at that line. Because I know if I was there, I'd be like yeah. touching everything and my parents would be smacking. But it also, hands. it reminds you of the, that he was also throwing the lines then as well. And it, yeah. and, it, and it really, there's something about seeing an artifact that it, it makes the Bible more visceral. That, it, that, you know, in our Christian walk, it's so intellectualized and it's all it's all it's all in our head. Whereas you see an artifact, you see you're standing before this giant granite bull carved out of stone that weighs 11 tons. It's just like this stuff really happened. This is not just some made up. Fair, this is not like reading Lord of the Rings, you know, about about Gandalf and King Theoden. You know, this is this. These stories really happen. These are real stories that really That's actually what? happen. That's why, I'm, like, one of my bucket list items is to go over to, you know, the Holy Land and take one of the tours, whether it be, like, an archaeology one, or I know that um, Frank Turk did one, I think it was, yes. like, on a cruise ship or something, where they stopped yes. at some of the cities, like Ephesus and Corinth and stuff, just because it's, like, to stand there and just, yes. like, look at the, you know, look at the amphitheater that you went, like, man, Paul preached there one time. Yeah, you he know? was here. Or, or, like, a synagogue that you know that, um, you know, a Jewish or a Christian church, you know, probably met in early. It's like, this is awesome. You know, like that connection to something that happened so long ago. And, uh, you know, that's why too, like, I want to go see the pyramids one day because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I may completely be wrong on this, but were the pyramids around when Abraham was in Egypt? Um, I think the, the three great pyramids in the Giza plateau, I think predate Abraham because, this, because there, among evangelical scholars, uh, there are two dates for Abraham. Uh, there is an early, of course, of course, there's always a couple of views, you know. <laughs> and I hold to the early view. Uh, I believe that Abraham was born in around 2166 BC. So um, I believe the pyramids are about 3000 BC, thereabouts. Um, so they may be earlier than Abraham. I think, I think some of the later pyramids are mm -hmm. probably due, but the three big ones. Uh, on the Giza Plateau, the three big ones that you always see on the pictures were probably pre-Abrahamic, I think. So, I just so, got to double check on the dates, but I think that's from the top of my head. I think that's about where they date. Yeah, well, we're going with it right now because uh, I, <laughs> I think about like, could you imagine 
like stand. I don't know. Have you ever stood before them? No, I've not. I just want my bucket list to do. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you're standing there and you say like at one point in time, Abraham, I'm sure was standing here looking at those things. Oh, well, they were in existence when he went to Egypt because, you know, he went to Egypt. Yeah. So, that's yeah, he absolutely could have. Absolutely, for sure. That, that's what's and, absolutely nuts. Yeah, and they were actually uh, whitewashed, and they were completely white and had a gold top. Like, the whole cap of the whole pyramid was actually made us out of gold. Oh, I didn't know that. And so I have a theory about that. Um, another paper I'm, I'm going to try to... I'm trying, I'm trying to get this paper at the Near Eastern Archaeological Association, Lord willing, this fall possibly um, connecting. I believe this is just this like, another thing I'm throwing out there here on the on the Dire Conversation podcast. Special exclusive, man. Yeah. Here we go. And uh, please nobody write this paper because um, I'm working on it. But um, connecting some of the monumental temple sacred architecture, such as ziggurats, and pyramids, which appear, in fact, there's some connection even with the uh, Tower of Babel exper- ex- you know, uh, expansion. Uh, we see the stepped pyramids. In fact, the first pyramids were not smooth on the sides. They were called mastabas, and they were basically tombs, and they began to build one on top of the other. But then we see pyramids in South America, these stepped pyramids in the Inca and the Maya, and we see pyramids. So where, what, are the, what is this all going on? And we see this in the earliest cities in the world, such as Iridu and then Ur and then Uruk and Mesopotamia, we see these ziggurats. Well, what, what are they, why are they building mountains? I mean, why are they building these hills? Here's the connection. Here's, where I, here's what I'm going to try to propose. I think that this is a historical memory of, of Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, and that in the earliest legends that when humans first began to write down their myths, the, one of the first, very first myths that they wrote down, the first, the earliest one is the myth of Atrahasis, and the other one that everybody knows about is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in these two epics, we have people going to a sacred mountain to learn the secret of eternal life. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, Gilgamesh goes to the Babylonian Noah. His name is Uthnapishtim. And uh, he's going to learn because Utnapishtim lives on the top of a mountain, survived the great flood, and he knows the secret to eternal life. So Gilgamesh goes to him and to learn the secret to eternal life. So I think this is a historical memory, although it's corrupted, of Noah surviving the flood on, mount, on a white mountain. So why else in these flat areas and river deltas are they creating a mountain? Because I think they're trying, in fact, what I found in the literature is that many scholars are not exactly sure what the function of the ziggurat was. They knew it was a religious function, but as far as what they did on the top of it, nobody really knows for sure. I've read John Walton. I've read any number of scholars about the the function of the ziggurat, and I've got a lot of scholarly books as well, and there's just not a lot of information, a lot of of data. So I'm just going to try to connect the dots between the Mount Ararat and Noah being on Mount Ararat, landing the Noah's Ark, landing on Mount Ararat, surviving the flood and these, uh, in these big structures. So you think no, it makes that, sense? Does it make sense to you? It's super fascinating. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's one of those <laughs> or things crazy. Where, no, no, no. I mean, to me, that's one of those, it's like, okay, let's go dig at the evidence and see, you know, see what it says. Like, I think it's plausible. 
You know, yeah. absolutely. I think it's plausible. Well, here's the thing. In archaeology, nothing's 100% anyway. There's nothing. Yeah. There's no way you can. There's no. Here's the thing. A lot of a lot of my philosopher friends, you know, they want all this certainty, you know, and but they're not you're not going to get certainty with archaeology. You're just not going to do it. Um, yeah. So why don't you t- talk about that a little bit as far as like how archaeology can help with our um, our faith? You know, in, in trusting that uh, these things happen, that the Bible is accurate, you know, those sort of things. Like, because I, I, I remember the lectures that you've done on it, right? Yeah. And, and I don't mean for you to do like the whole lecture, but just so sure. if somebody's watching here, you made the statement, nothing's 100% in archaeology. So they might ask, well, then why should we even trust it? Right. right? So why don't you touch on that a little bit? Sure. So um, it's, it's degrees of probability. And uh, so, like you said, it's a cumulative case. It comes down to the question of how do we know the past? Um, how do we know anything in the past? How do you know? How do we know that Abraham Lincoln existed? How do we know that George Washington existed? How do we know that anybody existed? I, I go with my own. Let me just start with an example from my own family. Uh, my grandfather, uh, God rest his soul, um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, going to my grandparents' house. He would tell me stories of actually being in a great war, and when I was like seven, eight years old, I didn't really think a lot about it. I just thought, well, he's in a war, you know, and uh, then come to find out later, I, le- I kept learning more and more about his stories in the war, and come to find out he was actually in World War II, and actually on D-Day, he landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day, June 6, 1944. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I'm just like blown away. So my grandfather was an eyewitness to D-Day. And so, and so three things that we need for history. We need eyewitnesses. You need historical records. You had to write down. And then we need archaeological evidence. So um, there is a lot of things that have happened in the past. Many, many things. In fact, the majority of the things that have happened in the past, we're never going to know about. The only thing that we can know about the past is the evidence that we have left behind. So... With uh, when it comes to my grandfather, now he's passed on. He's been it's been many many years now, so I can't interview him. But what I have is what I have is some of his writings. I've, uh, my grandmother left me a book that he had when he was in the navy. He wrote in the book where he was in England. He wrote about when he was in D Day uh, on the Omaha Beach, all that. So now I have a historical record, and and if I wanted to, I could go to Normandy. And I could actually go and try to find all of the different positions of the German, you know, concrete bunkers where the Germans have machine guns. There are still uh, evidences of tanks being, you know, unloaded in the uh, beaches of Normandy. So there's a there's a pretty good case that can be made that Normandy happened. It wasn't just my grandfather, though, writing about it. It was hundreds of other allied and even uh, German soldiers writing about the invasion of Normandy. So when it comes to the ancient world, in the same way, we uh, we base our uh, our case on accumulative case evidence, and so um, the further we go back in time, uh, the less clear it becomes. It doesn't mean it's absolutely not clear, but but the Bible has a really amazing track record, and so I think based on the track record of the text, just purely from a historical standpoint, there's no reason not to trust it. And um, it's like uh, one of my colleagues at ABR said, if you worked at a factory and uh, you were in quality control and you, um, you, were, you had a widget that you were creating in, in this factory and you had, you had like, let's say on a, on a typical day in the factory, you're going to create, uh, you know, 7,000 widgets. Now, you work, you work in quality control, but you can't inspect every single uh, widget. 
7,000. So what you do is you take a sampling of those widgets. And so in the sampling, if all of them are good, then you know it's very likely that the rest of them are going to be good. So in the same way with archaeology, archaeology is a fairly young science. It's only been around for a little over 100 years. And so every time that we go in the ground archaeologically, we set, take a sampling, and the Bible's reliable, 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 and it just is reliable. In fact, I would say that the majority of the major discoveries that actually show the Bible is trustworthy were discovered by people not setting out to prove the Bible. They were set out by people just digging. In fact, the earliest excavations were conducted by people who were not even believers. Uh, one example I'll just top of my head here is Hugo Winkler, 1909, a German archaeologist, discovered the Hittite civilization. The only place the Hittites were mentioned was in the Old Testament, and they were lost for like 2,000 to 3,000 years. And then all of a sudden, uh, Hugo Winkler comes up and finds the uh, ancient city of Hattusha. Not only does he find Hattusha, he also finds the Hittite library in which there's an entire Hittite language. So, um, and, that's so, so and that's important too, because that's one of those things where um, for a while, you know, in, in, in scholarship, Christianity was criticized for something like that. No, specifically the Old Testament, because it's like, well, it talks about the Hittites. We don't have any evidence for yeah. that. Yeah. And then before you know it, some guy finds and it's like, oh, actually, the Bible was correct on that. And like you said, if you start to do that over and over and over again, eventually you need to get to a point where you even if you don't look at the, you know, you don't say, well, I believe the Bible's inspired or it's the word of God. You have to at least, if you're going to be honest, admit it's historically reliable. Right. You know? Right. And archaeology cannot, let me just, let me say this too, Billy. Archaeology cannot, it's not, it, it just cannot prove any kind of supernatural thing. I don't think. Uh, I'm a classically trained apologist. I was, I was trained by Norm Geisler, Frank, both Frank Turk and myself were. So as a classical apologist, um, there's a basically kind of a, a two, a two punch thing here. It starts with theistic arguments and then evidential claims. So, so Christianity doesn't stand or fall necessarily on every archeological evidence, but it's a cumulative case based on theistic arguments that there's really good philosophical and scientific arguments for God's existence. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible philosophically, then the next thing we go to is the New Testament, because the New Testament is where we learn about the resurrection. And uh, the resurrection, of course, is in, written about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, the Bible can be, if the Bible can shown to be historically reliable, then it can record accurate historical information about a miraculous event that can't be explained by uh, just happenstance. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, um, you know, obviously you are a Christian and you are an archaeologist, right? So you um, are very passionate about this stuff, but there's plenty of archaeologists who do not believe in Jesus, yep. you know, don't believe and believe in God. So why do you think that um, there, you know, and I understand archaeology is like a big field, right? I mean, everybody is looking at Oriental archaeology or biblical archaeology. They might be looking at, you know, stuff not even connected. Um, but for those who are, you know, for those who are maybe researching first century stuff or even some of the Orient, it's going to overlap in some sense. Why do you think that they don't look at it the same way you do? Uh, it has to do with, I think it has to do with their philosophical commitments. I mean, everybody has biases, including us, including, I mean, I admit, I, I believe in God, I believe there's a God, I believe there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being. I believe that Christ has physically risen from the dead. But that doesn't mean that I can't do careful scholarship. 
Um, in the same sense, there are people who do really good work archaeologically who don't believe. But the problem, as, as you kind of hinted at earlier, Billy, uh, in, in our conversation, uh, it's rarely ever about evidence per se. It's about the heart. It's about the will. And um, I remember this is an interesting story because it, it, it recalls to my mind a story that Gary Habermas told me years ago. Um, so just real quick, he um, he actually missed a flight. I uh, was in Charlotte at the time, Charlotte, North Carolina, and he missed a flight. Was going to fly back to Liberty, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, and uh, some friends called and they said, "Hey, uh, Gary, Doctor Habermas missed his flight. He needs a place to stay. Can he stay at your place?" I'm like, "Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> Gary Habermas, yeah." So he he eventually we went and picked him up. It was a really stormy night. All the hotels were closed, so we got back to the house about 11:30. And he said he wasn't sleepy, so. Uh, we ended up going to my library, my study downstairs. Yeah, me and Gary Habermas is crazy. And He's I taken all your books. Yeah, he was. No, he told me, he said, you got a great library. This is a great, said, yeah, Gary. So anyway, I pulled this book off the shelf and I had got, I'd had it for several months and I haven't read it yet, but it looked really, I breezed through it. And so I was like, um, I said, Dr. Habermas, he said, call me Gary, call me Gary. And I said, I said, Gary, what, what do you think about this book here? Do you know this guy? Oh yeah, I know this guy. It was a book by Ian Wilson. And the name of the book is called the blood on the shroud. And, um, so this was about the shroud of Turin, which, you know, Gary talks about a lot. It's a, it's an artifact that's called, we call it in archeology, span a non-provenanced artifact, which means that we don't know really, really where it came from. It sort of shows up in the 1400s, but there's all these things about it that you really can't explain. And so he told me about a story about a guy named, uh, that was on the original, I think it was in 1977 called the stirrup project. It was the project that really took the, the, uh, shroud of turret and, and analyzed it scientifically. It was a Jewish guy by the name of Barry Schwartz. And, uh, he told me this about Barry Schwartz. He said, Barry Schwartz was on the original stirrup project in 1977. And he is, get this now, he is convinced that the Shroud of Turin was very likely the burial cloth of Christ. That and, and wait, wait, and that Jesus very likely rose from the dead, but he doesn't believe it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. What does that even mean? I'm exa- exactly what I said. I was like, I don't, I don't. Okay, I heard your words, Doctor Hermes, but I don't know what yeah. they mean. And I think what he's, I think he was trying to say is that um, you can, you can have the best evidence in the world and you're not going to believe. I wrote an article on this called is seeing believing. And my conclusion was no, because uh, Jesus even said there was a, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus, the rich man and Lazarus, remember at the end of that episode where the rich man goes to Hades and he's in torment and he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to convince his brothers not to come to this horrible place. And three times Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And then the third time he says, if they would not believe Moses and the prophets, they would not believe though one rise from the dead. And I think that's, that's all I need to know about, about apologetics and archaeology and everything else, because my role is just to present the evidence, do the best I can, and let the chips fall where they may. People are going to believe or not believe, but it's not going to be because of evidence, because you can have the best evidence in the world. Some people, no matter how much evidence you show them, they don't want to believe. Yeah, so, that's so, that's so, yeah. so important. So I did a podcast, and it was uh, three reasons why people reject Christ. 
And, you know, and it's not original with me, you know, if anybody watches it, it's, it's something that a lot of people get taught. And as you know, it's like, well, one of it is the, the actual physical, you know, data, you know, they think that there's data that contradicts God. Well, that, I think that's easy to overcome because there's so much data that proves it. Right. (laughs) Um, you know, the other one is, is that emotional pain. Right. You know, I had somebody in my life who I loved who who died horribly or why would God allow my life to be destroyed in this way? And I'm mad at him. So in some way, I'm going to reject that he exists. Uh, And you can't you know, that one's a little bit hard. It's hard to deal with that one on just an intellectual basis. But then the third one is the volitional where Mm -hmm. I don't want to believe. And basically, my answer to that is, okay, I'll pray for you. Like, there's not like there's nothing I can do for you, because if your heart's closed off, then. Like you said, what the Bible tells us about human nature and then also what we see in our life about human nature is that people reject evidence all day long because they don't want to believe it. Um, So, and I stole this from Frank Turek. Uh, You know, he said that um, oftentimes he'll ask people before he gives an answer, like, hey, if it's true, would you believe it? And I just think that is such a penetrating question. I, I use that all the time because to me... I've seen it open up their eyes. Like, well, people will go, no, no. And it's like, well, don't you see? Like, don't you see how biased that is? Like, if it's true, why would you not believe it? Yep. It's it's ridiculous. Um. So, all right, the shroud. You opened up that can of worms. I wasn't going to go there. Uh, I actually, <laughs> I actually penciled it in, like on my piece of paper here. Uh, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to do that, but I'm going to open it now. Um. What's your take on it? I'm with Gary on that. I lean very strongly that it's very authentic, um, but I don't put all my eggs in the basket. Even if we didn't have the shroud, if the shroud were not even in the picture, yeah. I think we have a very strong case that for the resurrection. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's legit, and I think it's uh, because uh, of what Gary, because a lot of what I learned about from Gary on this, um, because what they do, and he explained it to me this way, what they do, the scientists have done that are really setting this in a very critical academic scientific manner is they eliminate what it's not. It's not a painting. It's not this, it's not that what they've decided in what it, where all the arrows seem to point to uh, scientifically on the shroud is that is a, it is very much almost like an X-ray or a gamma ray image. There are two types of radiation that could cause that kind of image x-ray and gamma radiation and these are the two most powerful forms of radiation in the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum and then you take with that all the other ancillary and uh corollary evidence such as the weave of the fabric the uh, pollen that was on the thing the chemical analysis of the limestone that was found on the feet uh the the manner in which the body was rapidly buried uh, the blood stains, um, that it was blood. Also, one other thing too, I don't know if you've ever heard this, Billy, this is really amazing, it's something I learned from Gary, is the sequence of the stains on the shroud um, were interesting. And basically, the blood was first, and then the image came hmm. after it. So in other words, the bo- a, a dead body was wrapped, and then this image of this body. In fact, the image can't be seen with the naked eye. The, you can only see it through a photographic negative. So, so, yeah, it's, so it's, it's, I lean toward that it's authentic, but I'm not going to put all my eggs in the basket. Yeah, and I think that's – obviously, you wouldn't put your, you know, all your eggs in the basket 
on on almost anything, you know, nope. one piece of evidence. We talked about that earlier. But with the shroud, you know, I would agree, right? Like nobody should put all their evidence on it. So if, if somebody's somehow has found this podcast and they're not a believer, like Christians are not banking on the shroud as some no. sort of like, this is a make or break it for the resurrection. Um, here's my take on it. So my first introduction to it was like some history channel documentary that I watched <laughs> when I was like in, in high school or something. Um, you know, I had no idea the ridiculous nature of the history channel back then, but, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't know this thing has actually been studied for that long. Uh, so when I started to get into the apologetics world and I heard Gary Habermas talk about it and you and some other people, I started to look into it some. So I watched Gary's like hour long lecture on it. Now, of course, that is tip of the iceberg, right? I mean, there's yeah. all that more micro details about it. I haven't done the actual micro detail study about it. I've listened to his lectures. I've listened to some other people talk about it. So here, here's my here's my here's my hang up. All right, I'm gonna, okay. I'm, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give my pushback, and here's my hang up. <laughs> right, the way I look at things is it, I'm gonna I'm not a presuppositionalist, but for the sake of this, I'm gonna be a presuppositionalist. Sure. Right. So I believe that since God exists, He strategically gives us things in the time that we need them historically to give us like enough evidence to where we can believe in him, but not like the, let me write my name in the sky so nobody can deny me sort of a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I believe that like the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think that was absolutely pinpoint. He gave them at that specific time because it's like right when all that sort of scholarship was ramping up so he can come in and go, look how ridiculous y'all are. Same thing with discovery of the Hittites, you know? So I look at the discoveries that we have, the evidence that we have, God giving it to us in those times. Um, so with the Shroud of Turn, the question I ask myself is, if God is going to give us that type, like that um, category of a piece of evidence, because it's kind of it's kind of like a standalone thing, you know, mm -hmm. why would he give it to us in such a not controversial, but like such a unsure manner, like, like give it to us to where it's like, you know, man, this is like, this is pretty legit. I can't believe that this is actually, actually there. But then the second question I have is why would he even do it when we have this mountain of other evidence that supports, you know, the Bible, Christianity, Jesus, all that sort of stuff. Like why give us this thing that seems so, I, mystical like like kind of like one of those things you read about in a lord of the rings you know like when i when i read about the resurrection of jesus right now okay well we got inscriptions on ossuaries that talk about jesus and we have you know people being uh crucified in the in the first century so we know crucifixion happened um you know i, I see that sort of stuff the pottery and the pottery evidence that you talk mm -hmm. about on some of your videos and how it it confirms to us you know things that happened in the old testament when they happened that to me is like, that's, you know, that's the evidence that, that makes sense. It's not all like fanciful and weird, but the shroud of turn to me, is like, why would God give us a piece of evidence that, that some sort of like gamma radiation to, to prove that Jesus rose from the dead? So to me, that's like, that's my hangup. Tell me why I'm wrong. Help me. Well, that's all anecdotal. I mean, uh, I he, yeah, God can do whatever he wants, however he wants it. And it's not always what we think, it's, you know, but the, but the fact of the matter is though, Billy, there are people who don't believe it. In fact, the, yeah. most people don't believe it. So even if you could show beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was legitimate, there, there will still be people who won't believe it. So I'm open to, so, I'm open to it. 
I don't know of any. I don't know of any major apologist who uses that as their major argument. But oh, I'll, yeah. I will say, here's how I put it uh, in the category of evidence. It's one of those things that's really hard to explain if you, from a nat- purely naturalistic standpoint, hmm. and all it, it's more of like a pebble in the shoe kind of thing. To use a Greg Kokel term, it's like a what do you do with the Shroud of Turin? I mean, I don't put all of my eggs in the basket, but sure. it cannot be explained naturalistically. Um, it's not a painting. Uh, it's not, uh, it can only be, you know, here, here's the thing is that if Jesus, if Jesus was the creator of the universe, if he, he, let me give you, okay, let me, let me give you a little pushback. What, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yeah. He, he glowed white, right? I mean, he had this huge, his face shone yeah. like the surface yeah. of the sun. What does the sun have been coming out of it? Radiation. Mm-hmm. It would kill you if you were near it. So that amount of radiation would kill a human being. But if you're the creator of the universe in a human body, and that human body comes back to life in a, in a, in a piece of cloth, then it's just going to flash bulb light the whole thing up, and he's going to come. He's going to just go right through the cloth. So one of the things also that Gary talks about is the. Um, the images of the of the hands on the shroud um, are the bone. You can actually see the bones. They can actually see the teeth in the in, between, uh, in the beard, um, the coins on the eyes. Um, Gary actually admitted that I uh, think a while back he'd make the case that you could actually make out the actual uh, Pontius Pilate coins, uh, but but it's really hard to, to make the case for that. But they are definitely coins, and they date from the Roman period. Um, but it's all, all of that is all just um, circumstantial. Uh, there's no way, there's no way to 100% show it to be true. It's all, all I'll say is it's an interesting artifact that can't be explained. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to. But you to know. your point, though, circumstantial evidence actually it, it can build a very strong case. And even in some sense can build a stronger case, you know, than I'm not saying eyewitness because of the gospels, but you know, I'm just thinking about like, you know, out on the street today, if you talk to 10 people who saw something, yeah, their eyewitness testimony maybe versus like a load of circumstantial evidence. Like it's not that the eyewitness is way over the circumstantial evidence because we don't know if we can trust them. They could be liars. They could be uh, making it up. They could have bad memories. They could have thought they saw something when they really didn't see something, but all the circumstantial evidence is, you know, it's unbiased. Yeah. It just is, right? Let me recommend so, – can I recommend yeah. a book to you on this? Uh, Absolutely. This is, this is something that Gary recommended to me uh, several years ago. I think it was after he came to my house. I, I initially got this crazy thing that will be on the History Channel, and then CNN contacted me and wanted me to come on one of their shows where they're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin. So I actually emailed Gary, and I was like, hey, Gary, um, I got contacted by CNN, and they're doing this documentary uh, called Jesus Faith Fact Forgery. They're going to talk about the Shroud of Turin and, and some uh, relics and artifacts of Christianity. I said, you need to be on this. I'm not qualified. I'm not. This is not my thing. This is your thing. He insisted that I should do it. He said, no, Chad, you do it. You do it. Let me recommend a book to you. So he sent me an article by uh, Jerry Bergeron, and then he, he told me to get the book. And here's the book I want to recommend to you, Billy, and also to people listening to this, if they want to explore this further. This will blow your mind. This book is just amazing. Regardless of whether or not you believe in the Shroud or not, it's an amazing book. It's called The Crucifixion of Jesus by Frederick Zugby. Z-U-G-B-I-E, I think it is. You can get it on Amazon. And it is a forensic analysis of the crucifixion by a forensic pathologist. And he's got some things in there on Shroud. And this book will blow your mind. It, it, it gets into the detail 
the physiological detail of cruci- Roman crucifixion. And uh, he actually, de- he worked, well, he did some work with cadavers and on crosses and how the, the nails would hang in your hand and the pain that what you would actually feel, how many nerve endings were on your forehead, the cat and nine tails, and then describes the image on the shroud. I mean, you just have to read this book. This is the one that, that Gary told me to read before I went on the CNN documentary. And it's called The Crucifixion of Jesus by Frederick Zugby. Yeah, no, I'll definitely check that out. I mean, like I said, look, I gave my initial like kind of like mm, baloney meters going off sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. I have not done the research on it, so I'm open to the fact that it could be very convincing. Um, it just seems weird to me, uh, this sort of piece of evidence it is, you know, but again, this is where um, I think as a honest person and as somebody, you know, this is how everybody should function is like, okay. This is my feeling. Now let me yeah. look at the facts, right? Let me look at the facts and see. And and like you said, look, it's not something you put all your eggs in one yeah. basket. It's also something that, you know, like I may, I may study the evidence and and go, yeah, I don't know. I'm still not convinced. But that doesn't mean that I think somebody else is dumb for thinking yeah. that it is. Or sure. even, or even like it's you know, this is one of those pieces of evidence that you could say, I'm not sold that it absolutely is, but maybe I'm like 70% that it most likely is. Yeah. I think that's okay. So, Billy, what are, what are you going to do, when you, well, Billy? What are you going to do when you get to heaven and God says, "I I sent you the shroud and you didn't believe"? <laughs> I say, "Listen, I believe in you for the other stuff. I didn't need, I didn't need everything else. All I'm right? just pulling your leg, man. Yeah, I didn't need all that other evidence. <laughs> I just had blind faith. I gave you the burial cloth of my son and you didn't believe. Yeah, right. No, exactly. Just, he gave um, us his word. That's all. That's all we need. Yeah. No, I I 100 agree. So, um, let's say. Um, Somebody's been listening to this, like, man, I, I love this, like, archaeology talk, and now I'm thinking about going into the field. What would be some suggestions that you would give to a person who's thinking about diving into the field? Um, yes, I would actually. The best, the best advice I would give anyone who really is interested in archaeology um, is to go on a dig. Seriously, go. Uh, there are lots of digs uh, that you can join. Uh, you have to pay a little bit of a fee. But you can join for a week, a few days. Uh, there are lots of them throughout Israel. Um, just go on a dig as a volunteer because you want to see what it's actually like to be on the ground. But realize that a lot of the archaeology is in the library and it's in the study. It's you know the field work is the fun part, and then you do the publishing and you do the research and analysis. So um, as we've said earlier in the in the podcast. You know, uh, that's, that's the cool thing about archaeology is you actually get both worlds. You get you get the you get the academic book world and then you also get the field work. So I would encourage people to uh, to actually go on a dig and to see how you like it. And uh, and again, you have to you don't have to have any experience at all to do that. Uh, but if you're interested, you really have to be. And this is something I would tell my students uh, for years. And I still tell still my students today. Um you have to be passionate about what you're doing, whatever it is. And, um, you know, years ago, I don't know how many years ago it's been now when I decided to study archaeology, I haven't looked back and, and my interest has only gotten stronger. It's, it's not gotten less because there's just what, I, what I've learned looking back at my life and what I thought I knew back then. I, now I know how stupid I was, and now I know how ignorant I am now. Like, there's so much people could listen to me and go, "Oh gosh, you, you know all this stuff." No, I now I know how much I don't know. I know how how way behind I am. Like, I don't know languages like I want to. 
I want to know languages. I want to know, I want to know hieroglyphics. I want to know Akkadian. There's a lot of different things. I just don't have, I literally don't have the time to invest in some of those things. So I'm trying to catch up. Uh, but uh, it is an amazing field to go into. And uh, there is still so much more to be discovered. And uh, we need archaeologists out there who are people of great faith, but also have got a sharp mind and a curious mind and an adventurous spirit who love God. So, well, you definitely have an adventurous spirit because and I'll, I'll follow you on social media and I feel like you're always <laughs> out there like in the water or <laughs> riding a bike somewhere, climbing a mountain. And I'm like, does this guy have a job? Not enough. Not I don't do it enough. Yeah. Yes, I do have a job. I'm yeah. just kidding. Yeah. What, so what, like, what is your, um, kind of day-to-day operation like? Because as I was, I was like reading your bio online and, um, you know, you've kind of, um, I wouldn't say like, it's not like jumped around, but you've, you've been able to be in a lot of different little things. Right. So yeah. that's kind of cool because I get bored easy. So I do the same thing. Like often my attention, I start bouncing around and I just want to keep yeah. trying different things. Um, my wife asked me what I want to do when I grow up, <laughs> you know, I'm 37 years old this year. Yeah. So I can't figure that out. But so what, like, what is it like for you? Like on a, maybe like a, a weekly sort of basis doing archeology? span Well, uh, it's not super exciting right now. I have a tent making job part-time and then I also do uh, tutoring as well. And I do uh, podcasts and videos, doing a lot of research, working on some articles now, working on a, a book now, booklet for Rocio Christie. Um, I have got this project in Turkey that I'm working on uh, as a, a team member. And there's a lot of planning and a lot of academic stuff involved in that. And then also um, trying to figure out if I'm going to be able to go to Israel this July because of my schedule. Um, got some speaking events. Uh, it's just a lot of just trying to st- keep everything organized. So it's like it's like spinning plates, basically. Uh, but, yeah, um, I've got one new article I'm working on it, that I'm really excited about it. Um, to go back to to kind of to go back to what we were, you were saying or we were talking about earlier about translation, this one, this new article that I'm working on. This has been the this article is has been the culmination. I'm not even exaggerating of about three or four years of thinking about this question. It has taken me three, four years to figure out how I, I had this. I read this book. I read several books, and I had this thing that I wanted to address from an from an academic and archaeological standpoint that Christians I want Christians to know, but I didn't know how to say it. I did like how do I communicate what I want to say. So I would start writing, and I'm like, no, this just doesn't make sense. So finally, it just clicked with me how to communicate this, and I'm super excited about this article. So I do a lot of writing um, and a lot of research, a lot a lot of stuff in the books. Um, there's a lot of research that you got to do. So so there's a lot what, of book time. What's the article? Okay, here's the here. I'll t- I'll give you a little teaser. Here's the All right, title. So, yeah, so this is like three special access. Here's the title of the article. Right. Trash talk in the ancient Near East. <laughs> Just wait. I like it. Where where are you going to read an article that quotes Muhammad Ali, Conor McGregor, and Baal, and prophets Nowhere. of Baal? Epic archaeology. That's where I'm going to read it. <laughs> Trash talk in the Old Testament. Man, this God. It was. It's a God thing. I really is. God just really. I don't know how it happened. It just like. It's just literally writing itself. The, the article I've just spent 
years thinking about this and like, how do I, I don't know what I even, I think about this and it's finally connected. The dot, the dots are all finally connected. And I'm really excited because it's going to, I think it's going to communicate really well to this audience that we have today of, um, of the old Testament. And it also defends the reliability of the old Testament in a way that's not just trying to say we found this or we found that it authenticates it in a way that's even more powerful that God, the God of the Old Testament is not like the other gods. The true God will answer by fire. No, that's super cool. There's a lot of there's a lot of gods in the ancient world that do a lot of trash talking. God does some trash talking as well, but he backs it up by his actions. I love it. So I, yeah. I told you I, I told you I'm reading a book right now um about Thomas Jefferson, right? And I like it because um you know, we don't we don't speak with the sort of poetic English that those guys spoke with. Oh yeah, yeah, we're very much like street language, dumbed it down, uh, <laughs> sort of a deal. Well, so when you listen to like a quote by one of those guys, sometimes you have to stop and be like, "What are they actually saying?" <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what's what's pretty cool though about it is that, like you said, sometimes they're just straight talking trash. Yeah, you know? like, yeah. Like he like he wrote like I did, I had no idea about this, but. When the when it was getting the time when you know they knew George Washington his second term was coming up and they were trying to figure out who's going to run for president for you know president number two, right? Some people were like pushing Jefferson, and he was like, ah, I don't really know. I'm retired. I don't want to do it. But he wrote this letter to somebody, and he never meant for it to get out. And he was totally <laughs> kind of like trashing George Washington <laughs> over like some treaty deal that Washington was supporting that Jefferson thought was just a complete. Like, you know, this goes directly against the Constitution and it's it throws up everything that we've worked for. I can't believe this. Well, he wrote that to a friend and it ended up getting published. But the way he wrote it is in such a poetic way. When you first hear it, you're like, oh, that sounds nice. And then the guy guy who wrote the book is like, yeah, so what he's saying is, Washington, you're an idiot for doing this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, man, that's pretty that's pretty bold. Yeah. I mean, but but so, so all that to your point, people are people. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Like I mean, like ancient people. We sometimes we think people live like ten thousand years ago. It's like, oh, they're different. I think part of Same. that is like that evolutionary mindset that that embeds itself. Like we think somehow we're like way more evolved, and these people were like cavemen. Like no, no, they yeah. built the pyramids. Yep. You know, <laughs> the one thing, the one thing that I've learned, and I'm still, uh, still a student of history. I mean, I'm, I'm I'll always be as long as I'm here, as long as the Lord has me here on this earth. I will always be a student of history, ancient history, modern history. And the one thing that the one little snippet that I have taken away from the, the history that I have studied so far is that human nature has not changed since the beginning of time. And that that it is so sad to see the mistakes that we are making today. People have made hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. And as George Santayana said, if there's anything we learn from history, it's that men learn nothing from history. And mm-hmm. it's so, so true. We learn from nothing. It's, it's an aphorism today. People kind of chuckle at and laugh at. Yeah, 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 it's true. But it really is true. We learn, we don't learn anything from history and nobody cares. I mean, everybody just yawns at it, you know, like, oh, whatever. Yeah, let's go watch a video or let's go do whatever. But it's true. We don't learn anything from the past. It's, it's partially an ego thing. You know, you think yeah. like, well, yeah, they made that mistake. But uh, if I do it, yeah. I'm not going to make that mistake. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, archaeologists, we we have we could we could point to millions of metric tons of cities that are ruined because of the mistakes that people have made, and yet America and the world is going down the same road. I mean, America's only two hundred and fifty something years odd years old, 
we, do we honestly think we're going to, I mean, the way the route that we're going now, you know, I mean, study the Roman Empire, you know, study Carthage, study uh, any ancient empire, study the Persian Empire, study the Greek Empire, study the Egyptian Empire. I mean, these lasted for thousands of years and they're no longer here, no longer here. And they, I mean, can you imagine talking to a Roman at the height of the Roman Empire, the Roman Roman roads covered 250,000 miles of paved roads. They were the bad boys of the ancient world. And they had the Roman army. They had this marble city of Rome. And if you were to talk to an average Roman and say, you know what, in just a few hundred years, this, this is going to be completely gone. They would just think you're out of your mind. And I think yeah. if we say it to America, I think Americans would just kind of just chuckle at it and laugh at it. Yeah, whatever. People have been saying that for years, but it's really true. Yeah. Yep. I uh, listen, I 100% agree. And that's like, the choir here. <laughs> no, but it does the thing though, is it's like, man, that's a whole podcast to be done on like, yeah. the craziness that America's going into and what we don't learn from the, the past. Um, yeah. But we're not going to jump into that because yeah, I know, no I know that it's, I know that it's late and I also want to respect your time. Um, so let me, let me, uh, We've talked about kind of like some some things that you're doing current research on, right? Yes. So let me let me end with this because I was kind of interested thinking about what it would be like to be an archaeologist, which is why I asked you kind of like what your week to week thing is. What if you could like pick your dream gig? Go. Oh man, um, honest with you, uh, yep. I would live in um, either Italy or Rome somewhere. And be based out of there so I could have access to some of the libraries, the access to Europe, access to the Near East. Uh, three of my favorite cities in the world are Rome, Jerusalem, and Constantinople, or ancient Istanbul, or Istanbul, or ancient Constantinople. And these cities just by themselves are endlessly fascinating. I would be based out of one of those cities and I would launch out of there and do archaeology. That would be awesome. That would be my dream job um, to work for maybe an archaeological institute and be funded, fully funded by one of those, you know, wealthy benefactors and write and do research and explore the ancient world. And uh, and the other thing, too, I like about the one thing that I want to bring that many archaeologists are doing is to really bring in uh, technology uh, into the study of archaeology. And then that's being done today all over the world. The cool thing about living right here in Chicago and uh, near the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, they are one of the top research institutes in the world in archaeology, hands down. And I've gotten to benefit uh, from learning just from being around here and listening to lectures and, and having close access to the archaeologist. One of the things I learned about last year from uh, Dr. James Osborne is something called RTI which stands for um, Reflectance Transformation Imaging, or RTI. Is that like the 3D scan that they're doing? Yes, the 3D scan. And uh, he gave a lecture on this. And uh, what it is, is um, I'm going to pull up something here. This is actually a a coaster you put like a drink on. But you can see, can you see the pattern Mm -hmm. in that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, if you were to take a photograph of this, what it can do is it can take a three-dimensional image of this. And then you can, what it does is you have a light around it. And then you can rotate the light and then you can you can basically maneuver the image in a computer screen. So when you have an engraving, such as on a piece of pottery or wherever, you can actually study that engraving in a very high level of detail. And they use this in a lot of applications. And I just posted an article in Epic Archaeology Today about this archaeologist, uh, Rames, um, 
I met I met Raim, I think is his name, um, and he's a, an archaeologist at, in Jerusalem, and they were studying these crosses that were engraved in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and for many years they had believed that these crosses were engraved by pilgrims going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where what we believe to be the empty tomb of Christ is, and so in the Middle Ages when when knights, medieval knights, and Christian pilgrims would go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We believe that this was graffiti. These they were basically carving these crosses. And so, using, human nature not changing exactly. But what they discovered using this RTI method of these crosses is that uh, this archaeologist used the RTI method. He discovered that they are actually uh, engraved by very likely one or two people. So, uh, and so there's a common like you can see a pattern to it. So if it was just Lots of people throughout time, it would be very, very different, but they're very, very uniform, which means that uh, it very likely came from one or two Masons, which means that the implication is that uh, likely Christian pilgrims are paying money to have these crosses engraved on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So an- another example of how technology can really help illuminate uh, some of the discoveries that we see in archaeology. I was thinking you were going to tell me of some ancient Christian gang, you know, like putting their little <laughs> graffiti signs on Exactly. The yeah. Gang member sign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, that's awesome. So, uh, like I said, I want, I want to be able to support what other people are doing in the kingdom. I want, um, you know, those ministries to grow. That's kind of like how I'm viewing my ministry is like, Hey, let's shed light on what other people are doing and, and connect everybody. So that way the kingdom will benefit from it. So if people want to find Ted Wright and Epic Archaeology, how can they find him on social media and online? Thank you so much, Billy. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very grateful. So uh, people can check our website out. It's epicarchaeology.org, O-R-G. Uh, we're also on Facebook. Just uh, just look in the search engine for Epic Archaeology uh, Facebook page, and we're on there. We post a lot of stuff on Facebook. We're also on Instagram, and we're also on Twitter as well. And uh, if people will have a question for me personally, uh, my email is ted at epicarchaeology.org. Uh, just uh, epicarchaeology.org, and they can email me with any questions they have. Uh, we also do – I've done some stuff in the past two months. I've done some stuff for um, for schools. So I've had several schools reach out to me, and I've done uh, assemblies. They had all the students gathered. We did a whole seminar on the archaeology of uh, the conquest, and then I did a thing for a school in Texas on Pompeii. So, uh, so we do stuff for schools, stuff for churches. Uh, we speak at conferences. We can speak at your church. Um, we can do uh, Zoom talks or lectures or whatever people want. Uh, so please contact me if you want me to speak at your church or school or whatever, and I'll be glad to work something out with you. Yeah, well, the pleasure is all mine. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on. And people can also find you. I don't know if you mentioned it there in, on YouTube. Yes. You have a YouTube channel. Go oh, yes. Subscribe to yes. that. And I'm going to, I'll, uh, what I'll do is I'll get all of your kind of social media handles and I'm going to put it in the description of this video, as well as if you're listening to this on some sort of podcast platform, uh, just look in the description below and all his information will be there as well. So Mr. Ted Wright. Thank you. Thanks for coming, brother. Thank you, Billy. God bless you, brother. You too. 